Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show. Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on Cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon, you're listening to the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Happily, happy, we keep coming back. That's us. I'm joined in studio by Daily Mavic reporter Greg Nicholson. Always good having you here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Now, today we're just going to jump right in. Um, we really want to talk about, about something that happened over the past week, where we had our police officer, Alex, um, storm into a, uh, a police station and killing four people. So it sounded like a domestic abuse situation that, that just got out of control, Greg. Mm, mm. Um, and we really just want to talk to the, to the police spokesperson just to understand what's, what's really going on. So we're just going to go quickly to, uh, Lieutenant General Solomon Mahale to talk to the, to the, to the, to talk about this issue. Um, Lieutenant General, are you here with us? Uh, yes, I am. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming on. Now, um, we, we really just want to talk about what happened, uh, over the past week where we had a, uh, a policeman storm into the Alex police station and we want to, yeah. And we want to just really understand the, the state of, 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 of the, of the mental state of some of the police officers in the country. So issues of trauma, substance abuse, alcohol abuse. And we want to get that side of the story. We don't hear it too often. Often, uh, sometimes the police don't have the best reputation, but we want to take some time to understand what is, what, what's in the mind state and the, and, and, and what kind of traumas are some of our police officers going through? Could you say some light on that? Yes. I, I think it's generally accepted that yeah. anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, policing is a dangerous task. Yeah. And anyone who undertakes this job would, you know, goes into it uh, knowing and there is sufficient training done to mentally prepare everyone that joins the service that it's dangerous, particularly here in South Africa mm. where the crimes that are committed are often extremely violent. Yes. Now, Police officers have to attend to different crime scenes. It could be a vehicle accident. It could be um, a truck that has exploded, uh, somebody that's committed suicide, people that have been stabbed, that sort of thing. So it, it, it does uh, take its toll on, on people. And to assist our officers, we have a program where we've uh, employed psychologists, we've got social workers, because we need to also give them assistance with issues, you know, as finances or other issues at home. And we also have uh, spiritual services um, that come in after incidents to pray with uh, to pray with people mm. that are affected, but also just to, to talk to them, just to, you know, do a little bit of a debriefing. And those that are you know, feel that perhaps they will need more help because you'll never know, you know, I might appear strong now after an incident and a few months later it leaves me. So um, there is uh, psychological services that's available. What we've also done, we've gone the extra mile. We've uh, engaged with our medical aid, Paul Med, to say that individuals that uh, do not feel comfortable approaching the psychological services that's provided at work they can approach a private um, service provider and the medical aid would pay for that. Lieutenant General, um, you, you, you've you spoken recently about a suicide summit set up by the National Police Commissioner Rio Piejo in 2013 and I'd just like to quote former police uh, minister Natim Tetua from that summit. 
He said uh, police officers are often reluctant to tell their commanders about their problems because they fear their careers will be destroyed. So they make the mistake of trying to solve their problems quietly, and that often leads to alcohol or substance abuse or suicide. Since then, what have you done to try and increase this problem and get police officers to to engage these sort of uh, trauma services? Yeah, look, I think what we've got to do is to demystify all of those things and more more importantly, deal with the stigma that is attached to this. You know, there's the prevailing culture, uh, not only in police, but in society, that uh, tigers don't cry. So, um, you know, there's this macho attitude towards some of these things and uh, people feel that uh, it's better to appear strong in front of your colleagues. Mm. It's better... Uh, to deal with this thing yourself rather than tell a professional person that can assist you. But what we've been doing, we set up um, um, domestic violence and substance abuse desks across all the different services where we're proactively um, distributing information, talking to uh, employees, especially during the debriefing sessions, so that they, they understand that there is a help available and that their promotion or uh, success in the police is not going to be determined by the outcome of that process. And I think uh, what the minister was referring to was exactly this attitude that uh, people think that because I am receiving assistance, from um, psychological services, I will not get promoted. There, there, there might be, you know, um, instances here and there where um, some of the commanders use this as an excuse to say, but yeah, we're not certain of your mental state, therefore um, we can't deploy you here or we can't give you promotion and so on, which is total abuse of power. And we've also said to our employees, as and when those instances come up, inform manage, top management to the provincial commissioner's office or the national commissioner's office so that those matters can be attended to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... And Solomon, just looking back, I think I saw read in a 2011 article some figures on on the trauma counsellors in the SAPS. It said the SAPS has 535 trauma trauma counsellors serving 172,000 personnel. Have, have, has that number changed? Are there more trauma counsellors available now? We are continuing to increase uh, the number of, of counsellors. Um, I don't have the updated figure offhand. Mm-hmm. But um, currently we've got about uh, 60,000 people that are being assisted by our psychological services unit and uh, social workers. I have not included in that number spiritual services. Mm-hmm. Um, these are just where people are going to professionals. It's uh, more than 60,000. Okay. And what, uh, oh, as sorry, I said yeah. earlier, um, and what about the numbers on... also help available okay. with the medical aid, yeah. Okay. And what about the numbers on suicide? So we, we, uh, there's published figures on suicides from 20, 2009 to 2011, and we had, I think, a high of almost 100 police suicides at one point. Is that still a figure that we're tracking? In terms of um, suicide, yeah. uh, we, we do have uh, figures. But what we try and do, based on the advice that we've received from our... Counselors is that 
it's better to focus on the programs that we offer, which is Choose Life. Because the more we emphasize the number of people that commit suicide and so on, then some people may see this as a way out of their problems. And the problems vary, by the way. It's not just because of exposure to trauma. Mm. It could be that somebody has been um, found to be uh, HIV positive because of the programs that we do. So we incorporate all of that, issues of lifestyle, issues of health, uh, so that people do not see whatever illness, whatever financial difficulties they may have, they may not see that as the end of the world, that there is help available. And it would be good if all of us as society, because the police serve me, they serve you, that we encourage them, that there is help available. If you don't want the one that is offered by the police, uh, Paul Med is there to assist you, take advantage of that, and there's, there's no need to be shy or embarrassed about mm. uh, seeking help. Uh, you as an individual, you know yourself better, and if you feel that you've reached a stage where you cannot cope, get a professional to help you. No, we hear you, and, and we really commend the, the work you're doing in partnering with the external parties. I think what we're really trying to find is, is, is some kind of measure that we can track across time to see progress. Uh, and I understand suicide is a, it's a, it's a really tough measure, but it, it, it feels like an objective thing that you can say between 2009 onwards, it was here and these are the programs we put in place and this is the progress we've seen. So what, 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 what numbers are you tracking to say that over time we are doing better at, 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 at giving people counseling help at, at, at making sure that domestic situations are, are better, the financial situations? What measures are the police tracking to say we are making progress on this issue? What we are tracking is the number of people that attend um, the individual session mm-hmm. uh, with the psychologist or the social worker. Social workers is to assist when there are problems um, at home in addition to problems at work. So they will then involve the family and try and uh, assist the members through that process. Um, we were not keeping figures before. So since the summit, it was one of the outcomes to okay. say, let us start tracking the number of people that take uh, the services. So we're currently sitting at just over 60,000. The number of people that have had interaction with uh, people from uh, spiritual services is in excess of 100,000. So it's, it's, we're starting to we see traction, but it's not at the rate that we'd like to because this is it's always difficult to to change human behavior it's not a simple thing and when there are myths uh, that are attached to our attempts to try and change this behavior then it makes the job even more difficult but at the end of the day um what we, we we do our best at is to avail information and for people to know that there is help available that's really the biggest message that we try and get out there. One can never fully control the behavior of someone um, once they're outside, uh, once they're on their own and they make their own decision. But you can try and influence it by giving them the correct information and messages. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I just want to link, Lieutenant General, the the problem that you can't you can't necessarily control um, the actions of these these individuals once they get into such trouble. And is there? Can you tell us about if there is a link between psychological and social issues amongst police officers, and then those police officers then going on to give bad service or commit crimes? Um, let me put it this way. I did uh, elaborate a little bit about the, the challenges that work in terms of exposure to trauma. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that we're picking up from our members is um, they, they don't want people to feel sorry for them, but mm-hmm. they want acceptance um, in society. And we're we are struggling at the moment because uh, so one finds that there's pressure at work because you know, um, you've got to perform and this exposure to all these uh, traumatic things. When you are out in society and you try to unwind and try not to think about work and, you know, you are made to feel terrible for, you know, just because you're a police officer. So they find that there's pressure coming from all fronts. And uh, what we try and do is to encourage them. You know, when you become a police officer, you don't do it because you want to be rich. You don't do it because you want to praise, you want praise from society. You're doing it because you realize that there is a problem and you want to help. And if, as uh, you know, different communities, we can rally around our police officers, give them the necessary support, and work with them to solve um, some of the um, um, social problems that that we are seeing, then I think we can we can go some way into um, assisting them and making this less and less of a of a problem in the police. Absolutely, Lieutenant General. I think I think our role is really to still be critical and, and hold the police accountable while still while still accepting them as members of society and, and, and understanding the tough job they do. Um, I mean, thank you, thank you for coming on, and and we'll make sure to speak to you again as we watch this issue. And finally, before we let you go, is also just to wish you a happy birthday. Ah, no, thank you very much. Um, yes, my first time on your show, and uh, thanks for, for wishing me happy birthday. I'm, I'm so going to enjoy my lunch. Please, now. please, I hope you can take the afternoon off, and I'm sure we'll speak to you soon. All right, thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic, fantastic, thank you. Um, Greg, just as we were talking to, to, to the to, to Lieutenant General Mahale, uh, the national spokesperson of, of the National Police, it was, I think it just, I just find it difficult to reconcile to reconcile. I mean, on one hand, we were finding ourselves often very critical of police. We, we saw the, the, the tragic scenes from Americana. We see what happens in communities. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of abuse of power. There's corruption. And I, I'm finding it quite hard to balance that with being sympathetic for the really, really tough job. It's a, it can be a pretty shit job. And, and just trying to balance those in my mind. I think we have to look at the issue holistically yeah. because yeah. on the one hand, in a violent society such as South Africa's, mm. and I'm sure the Lieutenant General would, would have given us the crime statistics, which in some regards are improving, some regards are worsening, yeah. but the fact is we do have a violent society. We want the police to to do their jobs and be effective yeah. and come to our rescue if we need them. But at the same time, <laughs> I think it is difficult to reconcile. You see, that's the thing. And I remember, <laughs> I, I was trying to think of this as we prepared for the show, and I think, I think just looking at it on a human level and just being like putting yourself in that well, position. No, in, in that position, I think it's a tough one. So we have to recognize while they're dealing with all these shitty problems yeah. that they are going through 
through their own difficulties. They yeah. are dealing with these these situations too, and there's causes for these situations. And it's not just like these guys uh, are stri- uh, just completely bad guys. Yeah. They're they're dealing with you know horrible conditions. Imagine being shot at, coming to a crime scene and seeing a raped child or something like that. You know, and that it's happens gonna, regularly. It's going to fuck you up. Yeah. Like so, so I think you do have to understand those issues and call on the SAPS and society to help them solve those issues. While at the same time, it's it's I think it's understandable to be outraged if the causes of those issues. Uh, uh, things like killing or police brutality or inefficient service. We can still be outraged at those things, but it doesn't, I don't think it makes enough sense just to call for the police to improve their services and, and, and stop committing brutalities or atrocities or things like that. They have to, we have to look at the causes of them and they are, they are multiple and, and, trauma the, the trauma police deal with is one of those causes absolutely i mean we'll continue to watch the issue and, and like i mentioned before i think it's just that twofold how do we hold police accountable at an institutional level while still being human about it and understanding that they're still men and women at the end of the day mm. um if you're just tuning into this the daily maverick show on cliff central we've just been talking about trauma within the police and we'll just be changing topics slightly we want to talk about the, the oscar pistorius trial and we'll just be talking to rebecca davis uh, daily maverick reporter rebecca are you here with us I am indeed. Hi, guys. Fantastic. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm just in a quite a heated parliamentary sports portfolio committee where um, opposition is trying to is trying to persuade the NCMPs on the committee that Danny Jordan and Mr. Olifant should appear in front of Parliament. But NCMPs are adamant that only Sports Minister Mbalula should be made to appear. I get the feeling, Rebecca, you're trying to avoid discussing Oscar Pistorius. I'm not at all. I'm just explaining where my head is. No, that's all. I want to hear more about that. Okay. So just quickly on Oscar. Rebecca, I was following this issue and and I saw that it looks like he's going to be out of prison in 10 months. And my gut reaction was that doesn't sound like a lot of time. That sounds pretty, that sounds pretty light. It is light, but it must, I mean, we must note that this is all completely procedurally legitimate, all totally legal. It's, it, it is, it is absolutely above board. The fact of the matter is that if you get convicted of a crime with a sentence not exceeding five years and you um, display good behavior in jail, if you undergo a rehabilitation programs, you don't cause any problems, then you are eligible for release once one-tenth, one-sixth of your sentence has been served. And apparently all those factors apply to the tourists. They will also have looked at things like, is he likely to be a danger to his community? Is he likely to, you know, go after anyone to do with his victim? The answers to those they obviously felt was very unlikely. So, you know, as far as checking the boxes go, it doesn't seem like anything untoward has happened here. Rebecca, while all the boxes are checked, what one thing Kings and I were talking about is, is this normal? And what I mean is that is w- would someone else who committed a similar crime, similar sentence, um, be able to get this parole after ten months um, without Pistorius's, you know, high-powered legal team and fame? I don't know because I haven't looked into, and I should, I suppose, I haven't looked into previous cases of couple homicides mm-hmm. which carry, have carried exactly the same sentence and so forth. But I mean. Given that correctional services must be aware that there's a lot of scrutiny on this case, I think it would be unlikely that they'd be making very 
concessions here. I have to imagine that that they know that there will be, you know, people will be looking out to trip them up, especially because, you know, the response has been one of consternation that he's being released so soon. So I'm perhaps call me naive, but I I don't think that that they're doing anything special here. I'd like to think that if it, if if the system runs smoothly, which we know sometimes it doesn't, but for other reasons, then other people in the same boat would get the same treatment. Mm, okay. So now Pastorius is going to re- get released from prison. The the soccer games right over on Kretscher will be over. What happens now? <laughs> he gets released into house arrest, um, which will mean that I assume he will go to his uncle's house where he was staying beforehand because we know he's had to sell his properties and he is broke. Mm. House arrest is not going to be Oscar going jawling around town and on holiday to Mozambique. I mean, he's going to have to be in his house at night, I'm pretty sure, every evening. He's going to have to report to his local correctional office, uh, the, the, the parole office frequently, and they will visit him at home as well. He almost certainly won't be able to drink alcohol, and they'll be testing him for that as well. He'll be able to go out to things like work if he has a job. Um, he'll be able to go out to sports to do sports, so he'll probably be allowed to train and he'll be allowed to go to church. Beyond that, though, it's not its not like he'll be out at parties or anything like that. You are still expected, you know, you are under arrest, you're under correctional supervision. You're not allowed to live, you know, a free and normal life. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether they decide that he should do some community service mm. in addition to that. Because mm, he said he wanted to work with kids, right? He did. He said he wanted to work with kids, exactly, and whether they will make him do further programs, some form of rehabilitation, anger management, and so forth. They may make him attend more programs, even though apparently he has already done a few of those in prison. Mm. Has there been any suggestion, and and can he even, um, return to competitive running? Because I find that that would be completely bizarre if all of a sudden murder accused is, you know, running in, in international competitions or something. I haven't heard anyone suggest that, and his family and lawyers, whenever they've spoken to the media during Pistorius' incarceration, have claimed that it's never even been raised, that Pistorius has expressed no interest in it, etc. I mean, obviously, he'd be pretty out of shape for a start because, you know, he obviously hasn't had been able to train in the way that you'd need to, to maintain an international standard. I also wonder what his... I mean, certainly he won't be able to, to travel internationally while he's under house arrest, so that would be another thing. So certainly for the duration of his sentence, he, he won't be able to travel. And then, of course, we need to look at whether he will still be allowed to travel to certain countries, mm. countries like the U.S., etc. I'm not sure whether they do let you in. I think perhaps with culpable homicide they might, with a murder conviction perhaps not. I suppose it's something we'll continue to watch, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just naive, but I feel like if you get to go to work, you get to sort of, you know, go home, read a book, you know, have a drink. It, it doesn't sound too terrible, but that's that, that's that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I know what you mean, Kingsley. Yeah. I saw Deep Fried Man tweeted something similar earlier about why is house yeah. arrest and punishment. I, I hate leaving my house as long as Mr. Delivery can come. <laughs> what's, what's the problem? And I think that a lot of people will, will feel the same way, but I guess we haven't been in that situation potentially over the course of years. 
And, no, absolutely, um, absolutely. I'm just thinking of it as, yeah. a, as a, a guaranteed get out of jail free card. <laughs> All awkward family weddings and get together. Like, guys, <laughs> That's right. House arrest. Sorry, guys. I can't make it. <laughs> uh, now, Rebecca, something you brought up earlier. You're, you're in the, you're in parliament for the discussion around who's going to be accountable to parliament on this issue. So what's it looking like? On, is it going to be, issue of FIFA. yes. Is it going to be Danny Dan? Is it going to be Fikile Mbolula? What's it looking like? Well, the whole point is, yeah. The reason why the opposition parties don't want to see the minister brought before Parliament is for the obvious reason that Kilian Mbalula had nothing to do with the bribes. He was not the sports minister at the time. What did he know about it? The only thing he can report is based on basically hearsay or whatever. Rebecca? Okay, I think we've lost Rebecca there. I think we've lost her. Uh, Anyway, we're just talking to Rebecca Davis about about the Oscar Pistorius trial and, and lastly who's going to appear in front of parliament um, to actually answer to what's going on with the, with the corruption allegations uh, uh, around FIFA and the 2010 World Cup. So the the, the, the ANC sounds like they're pushing to have Hikile Mbalula appear in front of parliament, which, which, which one could suggest is not the worst idea That's, because he's, yeah. he's, he was not, he was not the sports minister at the time. And he's already shown, he's, yeah. he's delivered two press conferences on the issues. He's shown he's comfortable talking about it and, he, he he's largely just tried to tried to push all the allegations aside in defence of the local organising committee and FIFA. Yeah, which would be quite different to somebody who was who was who was acting at the time and and who may have a bit more tough questions to answer mm. if you were actually sitting and part of part of SAFA and part of the bid committee at the time. Mm. I think he's just more the the government's bulldog <laughs> to, to to fight off all all corruption allegation claims, and he's yeah. done he's done a okay job. I saw the weekend papers really hammered uh, Mbulula. For for this claim that the money given to the to the Caribbean um, soccer union wasn't a bribe, and for it coming out almost immediately after that in in the in the Chuck Blazer testimony um, to the to the U.S. authorities that he said they received a, a bribe for the 2010 bid. So it hasn't gone well for him in terms of his defenses so far, but he's doing his best. Yeah, I suppose we'll continue to watch. Um, if you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We talked about issues of, of trauma in the police, talked about Oscar Pistorius, issues at FIFA, and also just briefly spoke to Rebecca Davis. Please, please, please go out and get her book, Best White and Other Anxious Delusions. I just finished my copy last week and it is absolutely hilarious. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back shortly. Cliffcentral.com. If you're just tuning in, you're tuning into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Quite a show lined up. Earlier we spoke to the national spokesperson of the, of the South African police, talking about trauma amongst the police. So we had, we had a situation where, where a police officer walked into a police station and, and this was part of a domestic abuse situation he was having at home and, and ended up killing four people. And so we were just digging into, into the sort of the mind state of, of a regular policeman or woman and, and, and what trauma are they facing. Um, also talked about issues of FIFA. We had Rebecca Davis live at the, at the parliamentary conversation about who's actually going to appear in front of parliament to discuss the, the issues of corruption at FIFA. Um, and now we want to switch topics slightly and go into talk, uh, talking about the, the South African National AIDS Council and they've released a stigma report. Um, and it's something we've been, we've been, we've been looking at. Um, I'm joined in studio by Greg Nicholson and we're just trying to figure out how, how does one quantify stigma? How do we, how does it play into the issue of of, of, of the epidemic itself and, and how we combat it. So we'll be talking to Dr. Farid Abdullah, the, the, the CEO of the South African National AIDS Council, to give us some, some context on this. Uh, Dr. Abdullah, are you here with us? Yes, hello. Uh, how, are you, how are you today? 
Yes, very well, thanks. Thank uh, you for having me on your show. No, absolutely. Well, we just really want to talk about about the, the, the stigma report that was recently released and, and try and place it in the context of where we are as a country in, in combating the AIDS epidemic. Um, so before we get to the issue of stigma itself in the report, could you give us an idea of where we are as a country in terms of the fight against HIV and AIDS? I think we had, we had, we've had times where we were really, uh, um, really struggling with the fight against HIV and AIDS and feeling like we were not doing as well as we should. And then we've had times where we were celebrating the progress. So if you could just sort of contextualize this, how are we doing? Are we, are we, are we making progress? Are we doing well? Where are we in the world? And so on. Well, uh, so the short story is yeah. that we are making lots of progress, but we have still so much more, more to do. Mm. Uh, as you know, uh, we used to be a country which uh, refused to provide antiretroviral treatment. Uh, now we are a country that has 3 million people on antiretroviral treatment. That is uh, the largest number of uh, people on treatment in the world, mm. and that's good progress. Uh, we're also doing very well with treating HIV in pregnancy. And uh, that has reduced the childhood uh, AIDS, HIV in children, or pediatric AIDS, as we call it. But when we look at the new infections, we are still have more than four, 400,000 new infections every year. So the focus has to uh, shift now to prevention. Uh, because if we continue uh, to have new infections, we'll reach a point where we cannot, can no longer afford to provide treatment. Uh, more and more people will need treatment. So you, we have to close the tap. You know. In summary, that's where we are at the moment with HIV. Okay, I mean, that's great context. So I mean, so I think it was a slow start, we can agree, as a country. It's not like we've made tremendous progress, and it's really just about really finishing finishing on some of the great work we've done. Um, then could you tell us a bit about the stigma and discrimination? What do we mean by stigma and discrimination? So there are different forms of stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone has HIV, they get treated badly by other people. Yeah. That's what we call external stigma. Um, but we also have a form of stigma, which we call internal stigma, which is a, a sort of self-inflicted stigma. It's, it's um, you know, self-imposed. It's the way people who have HIV undervalue themselves. Uh, now, in uh, we've never known the extent of this problem. So what SANAC has done, the National AIDS Council, that is, uh, is we've done a survey of 10,000 people living with HIV. Uh, and what we found is that the general external stigma, you know, has come down. It's still present. Uh, we still need to do more about it. Uh, but internal stigma is quite high, with about 43% of people living with HIV uh, self-stigmatizing. Uh, and we also found that... Um, TV stigma is a growing phenomenon. Now, Doctor, just tell us a little bit about, before we get deeply into the results, tell a little bit, little bit, us a little bit about how you did this survey. So uh, it's very hard to get people living with HIV to talk openly. So what we did is we went to networks of uh, people living with HIV, uh, groups, um, you know, and... Uh, and uh, reached about 10,000 people living with HIV um, through these networks. Uh, we uh, sampled 18 districts throughout the country, so we got a mm-hmm. good representative sample. And we asked them a series of questions about whether they are, um, how they're treated by other people, what they think about their own disease, uh, and uh, what sorts of problems they have if they go to 
health services, schools, um, and um, you know this was probably done as a scientific survey. But the trick was really to get people living with HIV to interview the others. Um, so we had more than 120 people uh, who are living with HIV doing the interview. Mm. I think that's a nice. I think that's a nice. Uh, I can imagine that would really do a lot for for the level of comfort of speaking about some of these issues if you're talking to somebody who you, who you maybe you feel can relate to the reality of, of, of also living with HIV and AIDS. And, and, Doctor, when you say external stigma is down, does that mean South African society is becoming more accept, um, accepting of individuals living with HIV? Well, I think so. Uh, it's not a, a precise measurement because it's the first time we do the survey and uh, we can't... Uh, say scientifically that it's down, but um, from other little surveys that we've had over the years, we feel that uh, this result, you know, is reflects an improvement. So South Africans are responding. They are more understanding. They've learned to live with HIV. Now, what uh, helped us to come to this conclusion is that we actually had uh, comparisons with other countries. So this survey has been done in other countries, and we are. We have less external stigma in South Africa than most of the other countries on the African continent. Yeah. So that's a good sign. Um. So I think. I think what. What, 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 what our minds are going to now is like we have this. What sounds like a groundbreaking. Um, sort of survey and, and, and body of work. In terms of we've got 10,000 people around the country to really understand what the realities are for them living with HIV and AIDS. Um, but how do we use this for, for policy design, policy implementation? How does this improve how, how, how we carry out prevention, how we carry out treatment? And what do you think are the implications for this for, for the fight against HIV and AIDS? Well, the most important thing is that when, when you do the survey mm. once, you can do something to reduce stigma and then do it again in three years' time mm. and see if you are really making a difference. And in fact, that's one of the main objectives that SANAC is trying to achieve here. Instead of just uh, relying on a general feeling or anecdotal information, our job is to properly measure how we are doing with HIV, including with a, a subject like stigma, mm. then to um, uh, make sure that programs are implemented and then we monitor it again in two years. So, so that's the most important thing. Um, the other thing is that, yeah. is that uh, the survey tells us where the problem might be worse. And, and what we found is that the three provinces which have got the highest HIV prevalence also have the highest levels of stigma. Uh, that's uh, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, Free State, uh, and Mpumalanga. Yes. You know, so it helps us to target our campaigns uh, in, in, in those uh, provinces. I mean, I mean, absolutely. I think I think you're right. It gives us a baseline to work from, and also perhaps a more targeted approach. Um, I think it's quite phenomenal that we're able to quantify something like something, some things that are so social and feel quite subjective, stigma and discrimination, and now and now start to combat that. Um, so thank yeah. you, Dr. Abdullah. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have, but thank you for for the great work you're doing, and, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show again soon. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Okay, fantastic. I mean, it's 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 it sounds like it sounds like. A um, little success story. I mean, you don't want to call it before, before we're done. The job is not done. But we, we complain so much about government and public sector execution. And it's nice to speak with somebody in the public sector who can say we're making progress. It was a slow start yet, but we're making progress. We're doing well, surveys that are first of their kind and we're getting somewhere. I think the progress more is 
We, we do, yes, have broad progress on on particularly access to treatment yeah. services now for HIV, yeah. which you know, uh, ten well, a bit over ten years ago, mm. just wasn't in the country. Um, but I think this this new stigma report. One of the key things about it is that we're sort of measuring something that you know hasn't been really measured yeah. so well before, but it has a huge, huge impact on how people seek um, on prevention and treatment measures. And absolutely, I think I think the key thing now is try to take what are sort of more macro stats and very big, and try to get perhaps a more a more personalized perspective on 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 what, what it may be like living with HIV and AIDS and issues of of of. of 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 stigma and discrimination and give perspective on where we are as a country on some of these things. So we'll be speaking to Justice Edwin Cameron. Um, uh, Justice Cameron, are you here with us? Uh, good afternoon. How are you? Fine, thank you. We've just been speaking to Dr. Farid Abdullah of the South African National AIDS Council on their stigma and discrimination report on people living with, with, with HIV and AIDS. Um, so we're really digging into issues of stigma and discrimination and where we are as a country, perhaps even as a continent, on, 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 on societal um, sort of treatment and 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 the societal implications of living with, with HIV and AIDS and, and and what we need to do with that. Um, so you've been quite outspoken on issues of of, of discrimination uh, um, uh, in gender and in, in homosexuality in, in living with HIV and AIDS. So we really wanted to get your your perspective and your experiences on the issues of stigma and discrimination. Could you walk us through some of the some of the perspective you have and maybe some issues you faced over the years? Yes, with pleasure, uh, and it's good to be on your show. Thank you. I, th- I think we've got to start with the fact that uh, HIV-AIDS has been around for 34 years mm. now. It was in May 1981 that in the United States, the uh, weekly morbidity and mortality reports of the Centers for Disease Control first identified this strange disease. And the point is that from it, the very start, it has probably been the most stigmatized disease in humankind's history. Uh, there are other stigmatized diseases, uh, leprosy, uh, uh, you know, there are other diseases that people fear, Ebola, mm. for rational reasons, because they are highly contagious. But we knew within a very few years of the onset of the epidemic that it was very difficult to get AIDS. You basically need an injection of infected uh, bodily fluid through a needle through the skin or you need to have sex, unprotected sexual intercourse. Despite that, we're still struggling uh, uh, three and a half decades after the onset of the epidemic with enormous discrimination uh, and with enormous stigma. And we see that in in various ways. I mean, the the, the first is that uh, people are still very scared to talk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things have improved. People are. uh, There was a mass testing campaign three years ago, which... The government deserves congratulations for the health minister and the president for launching the campaign. Uh, the antiretroviral program has been tremendous in getting people to talk, but they are still, it's still the disease of silence and stigma and fear. Mm. Justice Cameron, one of the key things seems to be that I'd imagine in combating stigma is, is distributing or increasing knowledge and information about, about HIV and AIDS issues. You would imagine would help reduce the stigma when people understand that there are treatments available, there, there are only certain ways to, to become HIV positive, more limited than perhaps, um, you know, certain, certain people would have said in the past. But even now, that when I think a lot of people would know more about HIV, we still seem to confront these stigmas. Why do you think that is, even though we have so much more information available? Well, I think your point is right. In fact, we know 
that the level of awareness about HIV is almost 98% in our country. Mm. You won't find a suburban or township, uh, urban or rural, black or white, uh, male or female, gay or straight South African who doesn't know about HIV AIDS. Mm. Secondly, the level of knowledge is very high. There are people who still don't know. There are people who don't want to know Mm. uh, at some level of of personal denial. But most people, up to 90% of people, know that the virus is difficult to transmit, that you get it through sex, and that you can use condoms to prevent it, to prevent transmission. The, the, the problem is more intractable than that. The, the, the problem is that this is a disease that's sexually transmitted. Mm-hmm. And until we can talk with less constraint and inhibition and less uh, fear about sex itself, any disease that is transmitted sexually is going to uh, have a stigma to it. Mm-hmm. And the reasons are complicated. I, I look at them in, in my book, uh, Justice, a Personal Account. I try to understand why does the fact that this disease is sexually transmitted uh, contribute so heavily to the stigma. Mm-hmm. It must, I'd imagine, being sexu- a sexually transmitted disease must make it more difficult for for more conservative families, and, and you know, which there are many of in the country, um, and societies to discuss these issues. Well, difficult for all of us. Mm. And, of course, that brings me to the great unspoken issue mm. uh, in stigma, which is internalized stigma. Mm-hmm. And we know very well what externalized stigma is. We know that it's discrimination, it's condemnation, yeah. it's harsh words, it's violence, it's chucking people out of their homes and their jobs. We can do something about externalized discrimination. We can legislate against it. We can tell people not to do it. The much more difficult thing is when the, uh, the, the, the stigma is embedded inside the person's own consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that is a very difficult thing. It's the under-researched issue in the last 34 years of the epidemic. Mm. Because many people with HIV and at risk of HIV blame themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, how do you account for the fact that we don't have public figures in Africa who don't talk about their own HIV status. We've got 35 million people in the world, two-thirds of whom are on our continent. Simply demographically, uh, 11% of our total population has got HIV or AIDS. So we'll have 10% of parliamentarians, 40 parliamentarians, uh, uh, five or six ministers and deputy ministers, maybe one premier uh, living with HIV or AIDS. We haven't heard from them. Hmm. And the reason isn't, I don't think, external stigma. The reason is an internal fear, hmm. an internal mechanism of condemnation. And I don't speak of this as a scientist. I speak of this with very, very uh, humble personal experience of it because I only spoke out about my own HIV status in 1999, uh, which was nearly 13 years after I'd been diagnosed. Hmm. At the time... I was confident, it was just after Gugut Lamini had been uh, murdered in Durban, I was confident that I would be joined. I'm a proudly gay man, I'm a white person, uh, a white gay man, I'm a minority in this epidemic. I was proudly confident uh, that I would be joined by other uh, leaders who were heterosexual and black, and it hasn't happened. I'm still the only person in the whole continent of Africa holding public office who's spoken about my own status. So that, I don't mention that as a claim to anything because it, it's, it's just a fact. I mention it to illustrate the depth of the internalized stigma that still keeps people silent. Mm-hmm. And practically, 
that stigma still explains people who don't want to be tested, people who've been tested but don't want to come forward for treatment, people who don't want to talk to their families, to their loved ones, to their colleagues. It's still the pall of silence and fear that rests so heavily on this epidemic. Mm-hmm. So it was 16 years since you disclosed your status and you thought that other other leaders may follow, but considering that, that it hasn't happened in 16 years, it's it's sort of you wonder how long it might take for, for particularly leaders but also a lot of other people facing internal stigma to, to confront these issues. Well, a lot of working class and poor people speak about it freely mm. and we have the Treatment Action Campaign to thank for that. Yeah. And we have the Treatment Action Campaign's wonderful T-shirt, HIV Positive, which President Mandela put on when he visited Zaki Ahmad. And that was 12, 13 years ago, almost 13 years ago. So a lot of people do speak about the HIV status. I meet many people who come up to me and talk to me, but they're mostly poor people. The the, the internalized stigma is mostly amongst the the middle class and and, and the political and and the Mm. social elite. Mm -hmm. And you see, it's such a deeply personal issue. I've never, ever called upon anyone to state their, their, their HIV status, mm. because it's a deeply personal issue. All I've been able to do is to say, if you can bring yourself to it, two things. The one is that you will be rewarded with love, affirmation, uh, 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 approval. You will not get despised and rejected. And the second is that you will have an enormously beneficial effect on other people. I can only say that, and I will not call on other people to, to speak about, out about their status because the issue is just too difficult. I wouldn't call upon someone with hypertension or with cancer or with insulin-dependent diabetes yeah. to, 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 to make themselves an example, and I couldn't do it in, in, in the AIDS epidemic either. Mm-hmm. And, and what are the effects of it, internalized stigma? I'd imagine there are, there are medical problems where it means you, you may not go and get tested, you may not yep. go and get your, your treatment, you may end up spreading um, the disease. But it, it also seems, you know, you, you talk about sort of the pall that hangs over you. Uh, it seems like a soul sort of corroding um, condition. That's quite a good phrase. Well done. <laughs> a soul corroding condition at five to two on a Tuesday afternoon. That's pretty good. <laughs> there we go, Greg. The constitutional court judge is, is, is approving of your, of your way with the <laughs> you, you can use that in a judgment. <laughs> I will indeed. A soul corroding condition. But, um, but, but it, it, it's correct because the main effect of internalized stigma is death. Is death. Yeah. And we still have almost 200,000 deaths a year. And they are unnecessary deaths, almost all of them, because HIV treatment is so magnificently successful. I've been living on ARVs for almost 18 years. Yeah. You know, I cycle cycling marathons several a year. I'm very fit and healthy. I, I work very long hours, and I feel privileged and, and joyful to do so. I'm not boasting about it, but I feel very, very lucky to do that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a completely manageable medical condition. But people are scared to be tested, scared to be diagnosed, scared to, 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 to go for treatment. The second effect of internalized stigma is that our prevention uh, strategies aren't as successful as they should be. We still have approximately, the figures are very hard to, 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 to verify, uh, but I think the last uh, HSRC household survey estimated new infections at about 400,000 a year. And I think those infections are partly the result of our not being able to talk about it. 
they also the result, if you've still got a, a minute or two, guys, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, tell me when your news is coming up, yeah. they're also the result of the fact that, of course, we have to understand the complexity of changing people's health-seeking behavior. Um, it took the United States 50 years to bring the smoking rate down from 44% to 18%, and still nearly one in five of Americans today smoke, even though we've known for 50 years, more than 50 years, that smoking uh, is, uh, causes cancer, heart disease, uh, other problems, hypertension. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people sometimes ask me, why don't these young black kids just wear condoms? And my response is I want to throw a pie in their face because <laughs> it's such, such superficial arrogance. Yeah. Why don't you just stop smoking? Ask a smoker in your family. It is very, very difficult. Mm to change to health-seeking behavior, and so much more difficult when we, when we don't speak about it. We're at least speaking about smoking and its hazards, and it's much more difficult with HIV prevention. And That's the second cause, the second effect of, of, of stigma and internalized stigma. I mean, I mean, I hear you. Behavior change is not really something we can change overnight. Um, and, and you, I mean, and your journey, as you've mentioned, has been received with... With, with affirmation and with support. Um, I'm quite curious, uh, Justice Cameron, as, as, have any high profile or, or people or public holders of public office, have they privately confided in you that, they, that this is maybe something they're considering or maybe, I don't know, has anybody s- s- sort of seeked your advice about considering going down a similar route? No, in fact, the opposite has happened when uh, people holding public office have spoken to me and I've yeah. said very cautiously, mm-hmm. very cautiously at a later stage after the diagnosis, after... Uh, stabilization on treatment yeah. after sharing with family I've said to them you know it might be that you could consider talking about this publicly one day uh, in some cases I've never heard from those people again and I don't blame them I don't condemn them I, yeah. I, I, I think it's just too momentous and the, the, the momentous in effects of uh, Greg what was your phrase? Soul corroding condition <laughs> Justice Cameron, thank you so much for, for not only for coming on the show, but for your extremely brave journey in sharing your story with, with the country and with the world and, and, and I think paving a way for, for other people, high profile or not, to really, to be open about, about what they're going through and, and hopefully we can, we can finally sort of turn the tide on, on fighting the issues of, of HIV and AIDS and, and stigma and discrimination. So it's really just a big thank you. Thank you and pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Okay. Cheers. Fantastic. Um, that was us speaking to Justice Edwin Cameron, Constitutional Court Judge. Um, please, please go out and get his book where he discusses sort of his, his journey on, on coming out as, as, as living with HIV and AIDS and some of the issues around stigma and discrimination. If you're just tuning in, you've just missed the Daily Maverick from Cliff Central. Please, please go out and get the, the podcast and share it with all your friends and tell us we're amazing. And subscribe. There we go. Subscribe on iTunes. Greg jumps in there. We will see you next week. Um, have a great week ahead. Cliffcentral.com.